Good morning. How you guys doing? Have um, I've seen many men and women uh, struggle uh, with what I like to call uh, the salvation roller coaster of uncertainty. Okay. I, I don't know if you guys have struggled with that before. I know I have uh, the, the salvation roller coaster uh, of uncertainty. It goes something like this. You uh, go to a church service, you have some type of experience, and uh, you, you get saved, or at least you think you do, uh, and then as time goes on, uh, you realize that you're still a sinner. You, you thought that, hey, once I get saved, all of my problems and all the issues are over, but, but you realize, you, you marked the card, you went down front, uh, and, and then you, you realize that you're still a sinner. And so uh, you try really hard um, to not be, uh, but you find that you still are. And so you uh, do a little compromise here and a little compromise there, and then as the weeks go by, you realize um, that you're right back to where you started. So now you gotta go back to the church and you gotta re-sign the card and go up front, go Go down front with the pastor and pray the prayer. You know, you got to repeat after him. Did you guys have to do that? You know, repeat after me. You got to pray that that thing, and you got to mark the card, and, and you got to get rebaptized. And you know, you come up out of the water, and you're like, you know, pastor, can you put me back one more time just to make sure this one sticks? And um, is that just was that just my experience? I mean, I, I know that a lot of people have have struggled with that with that salvation roller coaster of uncertainty. Like, am I saved? Am I not saved? I don't know. Would somebody please help me? Would somebody please tell me? Okay, so that begs the question, what does it mean to have true saving faith? What does it mean to have true saving faith? Do you need to get re-saved? Can you get re-saved? Do you need to get re-baptized? I mean, it, I thought it was once you're saved, you're always saved. Isn't that how it goes? But that is, how do you know you're saved in the first place? What is true saving faith? Now, as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, I'm sure all of you are, everyone can answer that question, right? What does it mean to have true saving faith? Well, the problem is many of us don't know how to answer that question. We would say, because you know, we all you know, have gone to church and have read the Bible, of course, from cover to cover, everyone in the room, I'm sure, you would say uh, you're saved if you have faith, right? We believe you're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So, okay, fine. That's the answer, right? So to, to have true saving faith means that you have faith. Well, sometimes my faith feels very unfaithful. Anyone else? <laughs> right? And, and I'm the pastor. I'm paid to be here, okay? And, and sometimes my faith feels unfaithful. So if my faith is unfaithful and you have to have faith to be saved, does that mean that I'm not? <laughs> right? Does anybody else see why this is confusing to some people? Not to mention a lot of times when we use the word faith in our context, we're not using the word faith in the way that the Bible intends to use it. Okay, here's what I mean. How many sports fans in the room? You love to watch it. You have your favorite team. You have the jerseys. You have the tattoo and everything. Like you love sports. Okay. Now, for some people, their team has not won since 1914 but they have faith that this year they're going all the way. So sometimes in our modern context, we define faith as an irrational attachment to some type of certainty, despite all evidence pointing in the opposite direction, right? You just, just have faith, you know? We just have faith. 
But that is not the way the Bible defines faith, and so that makes it even more confusing. So I ask the question again, what does it mean to have true saving faith? How can you know that you are saved? Three things. If you're taking notes, jot these down. Here is what you need for true saving faith. Number one, knowledge. In order for us to have true saving faith, we need knowledge. What knowledge? Well, we need the knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. Paul says in Romans, how are they to be saved unless someone preaches or teaches, unless someone gives them the knowledge that they need? They need the information, the information that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. He came here to this earth, born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. And by believing on him, you can be saved. That's the knowledge. That knowledge is what you need. That's where it begins, okay? You need these three things in order to have true saving faith. Number one, knowledge. Number two, approval. Now, I ran into and often run into a lot of people that if you ask them, um, who is Jesus? Well, uh, he is a first century Galilean carpenter uh, who died on the cross for sins, okay? Fine, do you believe that to be true? You, it's not just knowing the information, but you must approve of that information. You must say, yes, I believe. I am personally approving of this. I am mentally assenting to the truth that Jesus was a real man, that he was fully God, that he died on the cross in my place for my sins. So you need the knowledge and you need to approve of that knowledge, okay? Thirdly, you need personal trust. That is the combination for true saving faith. You need the knowledge the personal work of Jesus. You need to approve of that information. Thirdly, personal, personal trust. Here's what I mean by personal trust. You believe not only that he died for sins, but you believe that he died for your sins. You don't just agree with the facts about the Bible, but you come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as a living person. Now, Here's what one of my favorite theologians, Wayne Grudem, says. Saving faith, here's his definition, saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. So you get the information, you agree with the information, and then you personally trust on Jesus as your Savior, as a personal relationship with him, talking with him, communicating with him, loving him trusting that when I get to heaven's gates and they say, why should we let you in? I don't give my resume, I give his. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to have personal faith. Now, today in our text, we will see two curious and strange snapshots. Did anybody else find this text really curious? As Pete was reading it, you're going, what is happening? I mean, you know, uh, calls them disciples, but then they get saved and baptized and they're speaking in tongues. I mean, that's weird. And there's prophesying and then there's bloody naked guys running around. I mean, what is happening in this text? We see two very interesting snapshots. These guys are called disciples, but then Paul kind of starts to give some Q&A and then, then it seems like they get saved, but they were called disciples. So were they saved? Did they have true saving faith? And then there's these seven sons of Siva. They invoke the name of Jesus. So they 
Do they have faith in the name of Jesus? Well, they have faith that it's powerful enough to cast out demons, but do they have true saving faith in the name of Jesus? Not to mention the speaking in tongues ordeal, right? So, <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> that's what we're gonna work through today. I had a lot of questions this week. As I was reading this text, I'm just, okay, I, what, what's happening with this? I mean, ton of questions. So here's what we're gonna do. I wanna roll through it and, and explain uh, quickly what's happening in the text. Then I want to try to answer some of your burning questions and some of the questions that I had because I want to apply the text, but I, I fear if I don't answer the questions, I can't apply it because your brain is gonna be working over here. Right? Does anybody else work that way? I know I do. When, when, when I'm sitting in the sermon or hearing a, a, a pastor, I've got all these questions about the text and he's trying to apply it. And I'm like, answer my questions, right? Okay, so that's what we're gonna try to do today. Let's read it. We're gonna read one through seven. Okay, I'm gonna try to explain it. I'm gonna answer a bunch of questions and, and then we're gonna try to apply it. Is that okay? Can we do that? You guys with me this morning? Nod your heads. Very good. One through seven. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, he passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, okay? And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, now we see that there are some disciples. Usually when that word is used, it's talking about believers. So he gets into a conversation with these guys. There's Paul in Ephesus. We know that uh, Ephesus was a major city in Rome. Ephesus contained one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world, which is the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana. It was very much into magic and astrology, so on and so forth. So when Paul gets there, he runs into these disciples, sort of. And so he begins a conversation with them and he ends up asking this question. It's a very curious question. Again, that's on my mind. Why does he ask this question? Why doesn't he ask another question? Have you ever asked somebody this question? You're hanging out talking with them and you go, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I know I've never asked anyone that question, but Paul here asked these guys this question, okay? Now, why does he ask it? Well, what likely happened is that these guys looked religious, they sounded religious, everything seemed legit, but then somewhere along the way, something smelled a little fishy. Something seemed a little off, and so it drove him to ask a question about their faith and specifically about what they believed. Now, uh, this happened to me uh, not too long ago, um, I was doing some sermon prep at Chick-fil-A because I'm a Christian. Um, <laughs> and that's where they go. So I'm sitting there, not the, those pagan coffee houses. Who would do that? So I'm sitting there and I, I've got my books all spread out and got my laptop open and, and I had like commentaries and I'm going back and forth and I had the Bible and had you know, my earbuds in you know, so uh, no one would talk to me. And 
so I'm sitting there and a guy approaches me and he, and he begins uh, to, to say how excited he, he said, are you reading the Bible? I said, yes. And he goes, man, it's so exciting to see. I mean, it looks like you're really studying God's word. And I said, yes, I am. I'm really studying God's word. Told him, you know, that I was preparing for a sermon. And, and he said, man, I really love God's word. And, and, and we just began to talk. But somewhere along in the conversation, I started getting these red flags. And so I asked him, uh, what church do you attend? And he said, well, I attend uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints. And there it was. The, the guy was a Mormon who, if you don't know, they do not believe that Jesus Christ is fully God. So we, we don't believe in the same God. We have differing faiths. So, so now it's time. Listen, you can't assume anything just because it sounds religious or looks religious doesn't mean that it's actually true saving faith. You see, we live in, again, the, the Christianized South, even though, uh, like I've said many times before, the, the Christian South is really going the wayside. I mean, it's really dying, but that does not mean that the remnants are not still here. And so many people will claim to have true saving faith, although they do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They're just going going through the motions. It just, they just look and smell and sound religious, but they do not know Jesus. And so this is what the apostle Paul encountered. So he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Now, why would he ask this question? Why wouldn't he ask, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I mean, there's tons of ways to word it. Why does he word it this way? Well, listen to what Paul has to say in Romans chapter eight, verse nine. Romans chapter eight, verse nine. Here's what he says. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The other way around, if you belong to him, then what do you have? His spirit. So did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He's asking them, do you belong to Christ? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Do you know him? Do you love him? Are your affections stirred for Jesus? Because if so, then you have his spirit. So do you have his spirit? That's what he's asking them. Now, that was a very interesting question, and their reply is just as interesting. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Okay, so hey, you, talking with you guys, they seem like disciples, they seem like Christians, and so he's hanging out talking with them, and all of a sudden, they, one of them starts to say something, the other one starts to say, wait a second, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they go, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Now, literally translated here, the words are, we did not even hear whether the Holy Spirit was given. I think that's a better translation. If they were disciples of John the Baptist, they would have heard or known about the Holy Spirit, okay? So I think a better translation or really what the intent here is is that they did not know that the Holy Spirit was given. So into what then were you baptized? He keeps asking questions. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, we, we didn't know that the Holy Spirit was given or we didn't know that the Holy Spirit had come yet. We, we weren't aware of this, okay? Well then into what were you baptized? Again, this line of questioning feels very strange, but not when you understand what's happening. The reason he asked that question is because he's asking, into whom were you baptized or who is the object of your faith? 
In just a moment, it's going to say what? That they were then baptized into Jesus' name, declaring that Jesus is the object of our faith. So that's why he asked that question, okay? Then they believe. Paul begins to explain to them, uh, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, okay? And so you guys need to believe in what John was talking about. He was saying that somebody else is coming, okay? So then they get baptized. They pop up out of the water. They're speaking in tongues. All the Baptists are really uncomfortable, And so we see here true faith and true conversion, okay? Now, I still have 100 questions about this. I I have five here I'm gonna try to answer, okay? Number one, when Paul shows up, were these guys saved? Okay, they're called disciples, but then here they get baptized in the name of Jesus. So when did they get saved? Where'd they save when he showed up? Okay, again, I think we can emphatically say, no, they were not saved. They were called disciples, but it doesn't say whose disciples they were. Apparently, they were John's disciples, and so here's likely what happened. If you're familiar with the Gospels, we know that John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way. He was the guy going, hey, everybody, get ready. Get ready. The king is coming. He's coming. He's coming. And and if you want to get ready for the king, you need to be in a heart and a state of repentance, So repent, and people were like, yeah, you're right, we should do that. And then he says, okay, well then show that you really are repentant and show that you really are getting ready for the coming of the king by coming down here and and getting dunked in the water. That's John's baptism. That's why they say, into whom were you baptized? And they say John's baptism, because that was a baptism of repentance. So then these guys apparently were disciples of John. They get baptized in John's baptism. They go back to Ephesus and they're waiting on the king. They didn't know that he had come. They didn't know that when he came, he ushered in a whole new age, a whole new covenant to where the Holy Spirit would then not just be with God's people, but he would very much indwell God's people. They were unaware. They didn't have the full knowledge. Remember what you need for saving faith? Knowledge, approval, personal trust. They did not have the knowledge. They didn't know what they needed to know in order to be saved. So Paul explains it to them. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He was proclaiming the one who was to come. And guess what? He's come. And he's lived that perfect life. He's died that death. And by believing on him, you now can be saved. Okay? Here's my second question. Can you receive the Holy Spirit after you're saved, or should we seek a second baptism? Uh Uh-oh. Okay. Can you receive the Holy Spirit after you're saved? Now, let's look at the text. Look at it again. Look at the question in verse two. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Okay, now, some have taken this verse or take this text and they will say that you can believe and then at some point after you believe, you can then receive the Holy Spirit. And it usually shows evidence by speaking in tongues. So you can become a Christian, get saved, but um, you're kind of going through life waiting for the special revelation, waiting for the Holy Spirit to finally come upon you. And when he does, then you're gonna show that evidence by speaking in tongues. Obviously here, that's what's happening in the text, right? Some, Some would say that. Some would say, you can get saved and then receive the Holy Spirit later, or you can get saved and, and then there is what is called the second baptism. So you get a little bit of the Holy Spirit and then later on you get the second baptism of the Holy Spirit really comes on you and then you speak in tongues. They would point to this text, okay? 
So I'll ask the question again. <laughs> Can you receive the Holy Spirit after you are saved or should we seek a second baptism? Here's my answer, no. Okay, no. And here is why. Again, I've already read Romans 8, 9 that clearly says, if you are Christ's, you have his spirit, period. That there is not a second occurrence. When you are saved, that is when the Holy Spirit comes to, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, once and done. There, there's not a second baptism of the Spirit. There's not a second experience. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of the one Spirit. This here says that we are baptized in the Spirit when we become one with Christ's universal church or his body, okay? So when do we become a part of Christ's universal church or his body? At our conversion. So we are converted, filled with the Holy Spirit. There's not a second baptism. In addition, Ephesians 4, 5 says that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, okay? So we shouldn't look at this text and say, well, we should pray for a second baptism of the Holy Spirit or um, that we can receive the Holy Spirit after, sometime after our conversion, okay? Number three, what is speaking in tongues? Now, these guys come up out of the water. Now, listen, I've baptized a lot of people, okay? This has never happened to me. I'm not saying it won't ever, uh, but this has never happened to me. These guys come up out of the water. Paul has his hands laid on them, and they start speaking in tongues, okay? I want to answer this in two ways. What is speaking in tongues? It is when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak a known language previously unknown to you. We saw this in Acts when uh, the day of Pentecost came. They were speaking in known languages because the people in the audience were going, hey, I'm from this place, and I, that guy's speaking my language. But the disciples didn't know that language. So it was a language known to man, but previously unknown by the speaker. They heard them in their language. Okay, that's one definition of speaking in tongues. Here is another it is speaking in tongues is also when you're empowered by the Spirit to pray in words or syllables unknown to people, meaning it is an unintelligible language. You can't understand it. It is a different language than any human anywhere knows, okay? Now, should we or should I speak in tongues? <laughs> this is fun. This is fun for me. I'm having a great time. How about you guys? Okay, now, before all of my Baptist friends get really uncomfortable, let's ask this question. Should we or should I speak in tongues? Is this a gift relevant today? I mean, th this is a huge debate, guys. I'm trying to answer these questions very quickly so we can get the application. But again, I'm afraid if I don't, then once we get the application, you'll be thinking about, should I speak in tongues? Do we speak in tongues? Or what? So is this gift relevant today? This debate has been raging on since the first century. What's the deal with speaking in tongues? Was it just for Bible times or is speaking in tongues for today? Should I speak in tongues? What do I do if somebody starts speaking in tongues? You know, what happens? What's going on with it, okay? Here is our stance at Gospel Community Church. We believe that the gift of tongues is a gift given by the Holy Spirit and it is for today. 
there is a camp called cessationist or cessationism, which believes that the gifts, these type of miraculous style gifts ceased. That's why they're called cessationists. They believe that they ceased and they are not for today. Uh, we are in the other camp called continuationists, believing that the miraculous gifts such as interpretation of tongues, speaking in tongues, uh, healing, all of those miraculous gifts are still for today. So should we speak in tongues? Should I speak in tongues? Here's my answer. If the Spirit has given you that gift, then yes. If he has not, then no. The Apostle Paul says, do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all speak in tongues? Right? He, he asked that rhetorically because the answer is no. Not everybody has the same gifts. So some are gifted with that gift and they should do so. As a matter of fact, we have members of this church that are gifted with that gift and they do that. All gifts are given for the building up of the body of Christ. And if someone has that gift, they should use it. Now, there's another very interesting question. If you believe in speaking in tongues and that it is a spiritual gift and it's for today, then why don't we do it in our church services like other churches? <laughs> I told you it was gonna be fun, okay? So, yes, we believe in the gift of speaking in tongues. Yes, we believe it is for today, <clears throat> but let me read this section of scripture to you. 1 Corinthians 14, 14 through 19, Okay? For if I pray in a tongue, it's the Apostle Paul speaking, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone of the position of the outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? when he does not know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but other persons are not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay, here's our position. We believe speaking in tongues is a gift given by the Holy Spirit. We believe that it is for today. We believe that that gift is given for the building up of the body of Christ for the church. Here, what the Apostle Paul seems to be saying is that you need to consider who you are, where you are, what's going on. And we believe that it would not be beneficial for our church because it would offend or the person what's here is called the outsider would have no idea what's going on. Therefore, it's not fulfilling its purpose, which is to build up the church. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so if you have that gift, what do you do? Well, uh, here at this church, if you have that gift, talk with your community group leader, let them pastor you, let them shepherd you and help you uh, build up that gift and use that gift in that context, not on the Sunday morning context, but in the community group context. That, that's how we deal with that. Now, there's prophecy in here as well. It says they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. We're gonna talk about prophecy later. I just wanted to tackle speaking in tongues because that's the one everybody freaks out about, okay? So that is our position. Listen, if you want to know more about that, if you have more questions um, on a communication card in the back, write down your email address and then just write Holy Spirit um, because our church has a big, long position paper on what we believe about the Holy Spirit, about the gifts, about speaking in tongues, all that kind of stuff. I will email that to you. You can read it uh, whenever you want, okay? Now, 
All of your questions have been answered, I hope. Again, a very strange text. They're, they're called disciple. All this happens, right? They come out of the water, they're speaking in tongues. <clears throat> what does it all mean? Well, they looked and sounded religious, but they did not have true saving faith. My question to you this morning, ask yourself these questions. Ask yourself these questions right now. Do I love Jesus? You see, when the Holy Spirit comes in, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your life, you have an affection. Your affection changes. So my question to you is, do you love Jesus? Have your desires changed? Do I want to obey Jesus' commands and do I repent when I fail to do so? Do I want to obey his commands? Jesus commands to love one another, serve one another. Jesus commands to, to go spread the gospel. Do I want to, is there something burning in my soul that says, I love him and I wanna serve him. And, and, and so I wanna obey him. And when I don't, when I mess up, you know what I wanna do? I wanna tell him I'm sorry and I wanna confess that sin. And, and I want other people to come alongside me and help me obey Jesus' commands because I love him. Do I love the brothers? This, this is explained to us in 1 John. It, it tells us that if, if you're a true disciple, there, there's a love for other brothers and sisters in Christ. There should be a stirring in your heart that says, man, I gotta get around God's people. I wanna be with God's people. They believe what I believe. And, and, and so I want us to be together with each other, serving each other, loving one another. Do you have a love for Jesus? Do, do you wanna obey him? Do you wanna be with other brothers and sisters in Christ? You see, that's how you know that the Spirit has come. There is a new affection. It should not be just a chattering of Christian terminology, but it's a deep heart change of affection. See, you can imagine as Paul is standing there talking with these guys, and he begins to explain that these guys would have been so relieved you see, these guys would have been likely trying really hard to live repentant lives. They heard about repentance from John and they should be living a repentant life. And so they've been just trying as hard as they can to do right and to not be so darn sinful. But see, when he began to explain, you see, what the Holy Spirit does is he empowers you to then live that Christian life. The thing with all most Christians or people who really aren't Christians at all is that they're really trying hard. They feel convicted by their sin. And at this point, they decide they need to work harder. They must try to do better. But here's the truth. Listen to this. If you showed me a painting by Picasso and said, paint that, I couldn't. Or if you played me a song by Beethoven and said, play that, I couldn't. But if the spirit of Picasso or Beethoven were to come and live inside me, I may have a chance to do those things. In the same way in our Christian life, as, as, as we're looking at all these commands and we're looking at all this stuff that we gotta do, you're saying, there's no way. But if God's Holy Spirit comes to live inside me, then my desires change, my affections change, and then we begin to walk in the light as he is in the light. We begin on this journey with him, with Christ. So, do you have true saving faith? You have true saving faith. 
One of the worst parts <laughs> of being a pastor is that oftentimes, especially here in the Christian South, is that you have to convince somebody not to get saved, but you have to convince them that they're not already saved. Verses eight through 10. And he entered the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This he continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Luke here is giving us a transition. Uh, He is getting us from that story, that encounter with the 12 almost uh, Christians uh, to the sons of Siva. Um, So we see this transition part here. He was in the synagogue. What's he gonna do in the synagogue? We know he's gonna preach. What's gonna happen? Well, some people are gonna get saved and then some people are not. They're gonna get angry. And then he withdrew from them. We saw this exact same thing in chapter 18 where he goes to the house of Titius Justice. He goes to the synagogue, preaches. Some people get angry, he leaves, right? That's exactly what we're seeing here. Yet again, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's an incredible, incredible statement. Luke is showing us that the gospel is going and growing and prevailing even over a deeply rooted pagan society. Verses 11 through 17, it's gonna get really interesting here. (laughs) And God was doing extraordinary miracles, not just regular ones, right? Like not just regular extraordinary miracles, extraordinary, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of them, uh, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by uh, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. God was doing extraordinary miracles. Uh, I love that Luke makes it a point to say God was doing the miracles so that we don't believe that, uh, you know, the apostle Paul is a superhero. Um, you, You have to know at this time, what is Paul doing? Well, he's tent making. So he's waking up in the morning. He is tying a a, a handkerchief around his head. He is putting on an apron to get to work. And apparently after work, he's laying these things down and people are taking them um, and they're healing people. Uh, So much so that the sick are no longer sick and so that people who had evil spirits are getting them cast out. Again, Luke is telling us this because he's getting us to the seven sons of Siva. So he's explaining to us why he's gonna tell this story. So the, the handkerchiefs or the aprons were casting out demons. Some guys start going, hey, uh, we won't do that too. And some of the guys who were doing that were these itinerant Jewish exorcists. These guys would go from town to town and say, all right, bring out anybody who you know, feels oppressed by demons or is possessed by demons and we will cast them out uh, you know, for a small fee, of course. So what they would do is they would try to find whatever works, right? Whatever, whatever works, we'll use that. And apparently uh, the name of Jesus was working. So they undertook to invoke the name 
of Jesus. Here's what's happening. Basically, they just wanted to add a little Jesus onto what they were already doing. They did like many Americans do. Full surrender? Nope. Devotion to Jesus? Nope. Affection for Jesus? Nope. Just give me his stuff. That's what they wanted. They didn't want a personal relationship with Jesus. They didn't want to be devoted to Jesus. Their heart's affections weren't stirred to obey him and to be with his people. They just saw the power that that had and they just wanted Jesus' stuff. They didn't want Jesus. And again, that's the terrible, terrible gospel. It's actually not a gospel at all, but that's the terrible word that is being preached in many, many churches. That if, I mean, all you have to do is just have faith in him and your bank account gets awesome. You're not sick anymore. You're wealthy, healthy, happy. Just have faith in him, right? And so again, you enter into this relationship to where you don't even really want Jesus. You just want his stuff. And so that's exactly what these guys were doing. <clears throat> now, what happens to the seven sons of Siva? Well, they get everybody together. All right, guys, it's time for the exorcism. Uh, everybody gather around. Uh, we have a pretty cool new trick in our bag. Uh, it's, it's using the name of Jesus. So here we go. Uh, the, the demon-possessed guy comes out front, and there they are, and they go, all right, by the name of Jesus, get out. We adjure you. By that name, get out of there. And what's the response? Jesus I know. We know in the book of James, it tells us that the, the demons know Jesus and they're scared of him. So they say, Jesus I know. And Paul, we know him too. And the demon might have said, well, uh, I actually know him because some of my demon buddies are actually homeless because of his aprons. <laughs> Jesus I know. I know him and I'm scared of him. I'm kind of scared of Paul too. But you do not have the power of him or the power of Jesus because you don't have the spirit of Jesus living inside you. I'm not scared of you at all. And then what happens is he says that he mastered them or in the Greek that he pushed them or beat them into submission. So much so they became the seven streakers of Siva. They get beaten so bad, they get literally the pants beat off of them, and they go running down the street. And, and this is incredible. I'm sure none of you have ever seen seven naked, bleeding Jewish men running down the street. This was an incredible thing that happened in that town. And so everybody starts talking about it, as I'm sure you would too. I mean, that's a very strange thing to see. And so everybody starts talking about it. Now, listen, I hope there's instant replay in heaven. Um, because, you know, I, I want to see the parting of the Red Sea, but I mean, that, come on. <clears throat> Moving along. So people start to talk about it. I mean, did, hey, did you hear what happened to those guys? Did you, did you hear what happened? You see, there's power in that spirit. I mean, that, I mean there's power in the spirit. I mean, Paul was, I mean, but apparently imposters need not apply. And so what happened was very interesting, although this seems comical, and it sort of is, it says that they were fearful. The, the whole town, the whole place were filled with fear at the power of the name and the spirit of Jesus, okay? So this is absolutely incredible. It says fear fell upon them all. Listen to 18 through 20. Also, many of those who were now believers, okay, these are believers, came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced the magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
and they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. They came confessing, the believers, the believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Why? Because they had true saving faith. Their affections changed. You see, when, when we don't have true saving faith, our affections are for ourselves, and what we want to do is hide. We, when, when we sin, when we mess up, when, when we're walking in a way contrary to God's way, everything inside of us says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone that, that you've been looking at pornography. Don't tell anyone that your marriage is a wreck. Don't tell anyone Keep that to yourself. Don't tell anyone that you've been having angry thoughts about this guy who sits next to you at work and all you want to do is choke him. Don't tell anybody that because then they'll know. See, that's what our hearts wanted. We want to hide. But these people did the exact opposite. They came confessing and divulging and telling everybody what had gone wrong with them. So I want to ask you this morning, are you done hiding? Are you done hiding? Is the weight so much that you're just tired of carrying it? God's word says this, that if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And so this week, if you're, if you're here and, and you know, you're saying, that's me. I, I've been hiding this sin. I've been hiding this these people came confessing and repenting. Do that today. Do that. Let your affections for Christ outweigh your affections for yourself and for your reputation and just come confessing and repenting and letting that burden go. It's too heavy to carry. Stop carrying it. Just confess it and repent. In addition, what else did they do? They brought their books together and they burned them. Their hearts desired allegiance to Jesus more than their idols. See, what was happening was these people were very spiritual, very magical, right? Believed in incantations, and they had amulets and crystals and all the stuff, and some of them got saved, right? But they kept those little strands that connected them to their old life, and they were hanging on to them tightly. They, they said, well, I'll just take, uh, you know, this book that I have. It's called Magic for Dummies, and, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to put it up on the shelf for a rainy day. I mean, of course, I mean, I'm a Christian now, and I'm, but, but I, I just want to hang on to this one little thing. I'm just going to hang on to this last little strand that connects me to my old life and my old self and my old way. I'm just going to hang on to that. I'm just going to keep this one little idol in my pocket. And it's not that big. I'm not as bad as I used to be. I'm just hanging on to this one little thing. But these people came confessing, divulging their practices, and they took every last vestige of their old life and they burned it. Many of you today have, have walked in holding on to those last little strands connected to your old way of life. Hanging on to the past, hanging on to past sins and coveting them, holding them close to your heart, loving them and saying, I just don't want to let this go. I don't want to let this relationship go. I don't want to let this addiction go. I don't want to let, I, I just, 
I just want to hang on to it. I just want to keep it in my back pocket. I mean, I love, don't get me wrong. I love Jesus. I love his church, but I'm just not willing to let this one thing go. If I could just hang on and you end up making that bargain with God and just, just, I'm just hanging on this one thing and you justify it in your mind and you justify it in your mind just so you can hang on to it for just one more day. My call and my plea to you this morning is to burn your idols. Burn it. Let it go. Confess. Repent of it and be done with it today. Here's the beautiful news. Jesus is standing with his arms wide open saying, come, come on. Come on, confess. Come on, repent. I'm, I'm gonna love you. I already know it. I know exactly what you're struggling with. I know exactly what you're going through. Listen, I know you better than anybody else. I know you better than you know yourself. And I love you more than anybody else. See, that's what's so scary to us. We're afraid to confess. We're afraid to repent because we fear the loss of that love. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I already know it. And I still love you. So just confess, repent, be done with it because I love you. So what idol do you need to burn today? What sin do you need to confess and repent of? See, this is the call to those of us who have true saving faith, that we have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. Um, we, we, don't, we don't call this an altar. This is a stage, okay? But for some of you this morning, you need to, before you take communion, you, you need to do some confessing and you need to do some repenting. And, and I'm just gonna say that the front of this stage area will be open, okay? If, if, if you don't wanna do it that way, um, I'll be in the back. We'll have some people in the back. You can come and confess and repent that way. We'll be there to lay hands on you, to love you, to pray for you. But I'm begging you, divulge of your practices, confess, repent, Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross forgives you of that sin, so be done with it. It says that the cost of all of that stuff was, was 50,000 pieces of silver and the commentators go back and forth about actually how much that was and can we translate that? It was a lot of money. It was costly. It cost them something. I'm gonna tell you right now, if, if you're willing to come forward and confess and repent, to come down front, to pray and confess and repent, to go to the back and let us pray over you, if, if, if you're willing to confess and repent, listen, it does cost you. It costs you. But what you get in return is eternally more valuable. You get a relationship with Jesus. You get him. Don't you see, he's the object of our faith. We get, we get him, and he is so much more valuable than, than pornography. Jesus is so much more valuable than my pride. Jesus is so much more valuable than alcohol or money or bitterness or pride. He's, he's so much more valuable, and by divulging in these practices, by burning your idols, by, by letting all of that past life go and turning to him, you get him. You get him. So, 
I want to pray. And I want the Holy Spirit to do some work. Let's pray. God, Father, the, these people in this text came confessing and divulging of their practices. They, they burned their idols. They laid them down because allegiance to you meant more to them than allegiance to their old and sinful ways. So Father, I pray for boldness for people today who, who need to come forward and confess and repent. Father, for people who need to seek prayer. Father, I pray that all of us would do exactly as your word says, that we would examine our heart before we come and take communion that we would lay idols down. Father, I pray that this stage, that this room would be littered with broken and destroyed idols this morning, God. That all of the things that are fighting for your attention and fighting for your affection would be laid to waste. So Father, send your spirit now to do a mighty work. God, you worked in the hearts of these people in this text you gave them a greater affection. And so, Father, I pray now for a greater affection in the hearts of these people, an affection that would allow them to confess, repent, and be done. Father, I pray that your spirit now would begin to set people free. Father, those who have come in this morning in bondage to their idols and bondage to the sinful things which they constantly turn to, pray that your spirit would work now. I pray that he would change hearts. I've been praying this all week, God, that you would change hearts this morning, and so I'm asking you to do it now. We believe in the power of the name of Jesus, and we're praying that in that powerful name. Amen.